Welcome to the Humanize the Numbers podcast series. Leaders, managers and owners of ambitious accounting firms sharing insights, successes and issues that will challenge you and connect you and your firm to the ways and means of transforming your firm's results. Tax and compliance work is the table stake that gets you in the door, the trusted relationship that allows you this beautiful platform to have the strategic conversation. We asked business owners in a survey, who would you trust for advice on building the value of your company? We gave them a whole list of professionals, your lawyer, uh, your banker, your exit planner, your financial advisor, your business broker, your business transfer agent, et cetera. And the number one profession business owners would turn to is their accountant. So I think accountants have this wonderful platform of trust in order to have this strategic conversation. Yet I think in so many cases, we're missing the boat. We're talking to owners about how they did last year. And we're talking about the rearview mirror. And I think you're, you're spot on. If you want to be considered a trusted advisor to business owners, you've got to have fluency in talking about their biggest asset, which is not their home. It's unlikely to be their pension. It is likely to be their company. And so I think this is a wonderful platform of Greenfield, you know, you know, having a conversation. Rarely does a single discussion deliver two profoundly massive payoffs. One around the capital value increase for your firm. And second, the insights into how to help all of your business owner clients improve their capital value too. On this podcast discussion with John Warrillow, author, podcast host himself, multiple entrepreneur and multiple seller of multiple businesses, you'll hear John share his insights into how you construct a conversation that helps yourself, helps your clients improve capital value. Let's go to that podcast discussion now. Hey, I'm John Marlowe, and it's great to be with you, Paul. Go, uh, go ahead and uh, let's get started. Brilliant. So, John, what would be really neat is to get um, a clear picture for the listeners as to who you are, your background, how you've got to where you're, you're at in that space of really appreciating, understanding and unpacking what it takes to successfully sell a business. Yeah, I mean, I guess I started and exited a few businesses, tried to codify some of the things I learned in a book called Built to Sell, which I published 10 years ago now, uh, which it feels Friday crazy. Night, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, uh, and since then, I've, I've started a new company. We do marketing automation that accountants use to position themselves in the exit planning industry. So that's sort of me in a nutshell. I'm I'm the father of two uh, rambunctious boys who keep me busy, and and uh, and a wife here in Toronto. So we're Brilliant. we've got a busy life. How old are your boys, John? Yeah, they're seventeen and fifteen. Oh, so right. one's so just that's... off to uni next year, and the other yeah. is uh, uh, sort of mid midway through high school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's full on. Um, uh, my experience is full on taxi driving service. Having got three, exactly, three boys to go exactly, myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, I was born in a little village called Manuden. Do you know Manuden, Paul? It's near Stansted Airport. Oh, right. I was was there earlier on this week, actually, just on the outskirts of uh, Stansted, right? Yeah. So I I have a lot of family in England and get back to England uh, quite often. Um, So kind of uh, feel, although I'm Canadian, I feel very, uh, very close to the UK as well. Anglicized as well. Brilliant. Brilliant. So, John, opening gambit is, what what does the phrase humanize the numbers mean to you based on your experiences of your businesses and working with other 
business owners, leaders who are looking to sell their business? Yeah, I think, you know, the ultimate number for a business owner is, well, what's the value of my company? And that can be a very clinical calculation. As any accountant knows, they can do evaluation, give them a, a back of the napkin understanding. But I think what is more important for accountants to understand in asking that question is what lies beneath the value of that company and why that's important to the owner. In my experience, and Paul, I know you've spoken to a lot of business owners as well, you know, I, I think owners ultimately are motivated by freedom. You know, there's a reason that you know, entrepreneurs do what they do. They didn't go to work for Procter and Gamble. They're not working at Barclays. They're they they've started a company, right? And mm. I think fundamentally, you could say, oh, it's because they had an idea, or you know, they got fired, and they want you know they had to provide for their family. You could you could say all that, but I think if you peel back the layers, what the common denominator among entrepreneurs is 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 that they desire freedom, and and so I think that's you know that. That is why the the value of their company is important to them because if they have built a business that is valuable enough to create enough wealth that would give them freedom, mm. I, I think it's it's an all it's a great stepping off point as an accounting accountant to say is it, you know you've reached this point in your life where you could have the freedom that you desire. Yeah. Do you want to monetize that? Do do you want to actually execute that? Yeah, yeah. But it is, isn't it, John, more than just freedom at the end? Is it not freedom during the journey from start up to sale of the business that the business owners are seeking freedom? Because there's, yeah. there's, you know, yeah, there's the end game, fine. But actually, if you have a miserable existence from the start to the finish, that's, you know, I'm not sure that's particularly um, good for humanity, certainly not for the business owner as an individual. Not, yeah, no, absolutely not. You're absolutely right. I think, you know, Entrepreneurs start their business because they think they want freedom, and in the early days, it they have freedom, right? They don't have customers, they don't have employees, they you know they can do whatever they want, and and yet they don't have a business, and so they build up, you know, customers, and and ultimately that winnows away or chips away at their freedom, and and they most most people reach uh, most entrepreneurs reach a point, and, and that could be at five hundred thousand pounds in turnover, or a million pounds in turnover, or two million pounds in turnover, where they literally feel less free than they did when they had a job. They, mm. You know, they have all of the burden of entrepreneurship, but but none of the freedom. And that's often when they pick up built to sell and they're like, okay, I need to get out of this conundrum. And they realize there's a, there's a route to, 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 you know, working a little less in the business as Michael Gerber says, and working on the business and, and putting yeah, yeah. systems in place and so forth. So that's, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think, I think that's a key, you know, I think everybody's got to get there. Like, you know, the alcoholic, they, everybody say, well, they're never going to quit until they hit rock bottom. I think there's something to that among entrepreneurs, that, right? right? Okay, you got to hit right. rock bottom. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I guess there's a, just to just to turn it from the, the, the actual feeling of sense of freedom that the business owner is wanting, there's the uh, almost a, a trade-off is the John, and I, I, I value your insights on this in terms of there's, some freedom for having a profit-focused business, mm. which is uh, maybe conflicting with the capital value out. And now I know there's you know it, multiples of EBITDA and so on, but mm -hmm. um, you know it's like invest in the business so that you've got the best out you can, but also yeah. 
almost conflicting with actually you want to enjoy the journey and have the holidays as well and, and not be, you know, what is it? Jack is a dull boy who works all day or however that phrase pans out. Yeah, yeah. What, yeah. what are your views on that? You know, is is it profit or capital value or is it a blend of the two? Is there a timing difference or what, you, what, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I, I love, especially accounting accountants, because as, as an accounting professional, uh, you've obviously, most most accounting professionals are students of business. They study business at uni. They, they got an accounting degree. They, they know the numbers upside and down. And I think it, it means that as an accounting professional, you are more likely to talk to owners about manager metrics, because mm-hmm. that is the language of accounting. A manager metric is uh, revenue, EBITDA, gross margin, gross price. I mean, those are all metrics that we learn about in management training. And we then go and talk to our clients about those metrics. Mm. Yet, we have to remember that owners wear two hats. They are both managers of their business, and they are also owners of their business. And when we talk to them about manager metrics, such as revenue, turnover, profit, EBITDA, you know, gross margin, et cetera, we're talking to them in their manager psyche. They're wearing their manager hat. Yeah. And the secret to going beyond accounting as an expense on their line item to an investment, the secret from going just the guy who does the tax return to being someone who is a strategic advisor to a business owner, who is a trusted advisor to a business owner, the mm. secret from going to someone where they're quibbling over, well, why do you charge 200 pounds an hour? And, and you know, The secret is to go from talking to owners about manager metrics and it evolving your dialogue to talking about owner metrics. And the owner metric, the ultimate owner metric is the value of their company. And 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 revenue and EBITDA are important to calculating the value of the company, but it turns out those are only seven only one of eight key drivers of company value. So mm. if all day long you're talking to owners about revenue, profit and EBITDA, you're only really talking about one dimension of the value of their company. There are these seven other areas. And I think the secret to really becoming the trusted advisor is becoming fluent in that language Hmm. and being able to really talk to owners. Look, this is your biggest asset. Um, You know, what's it worth? How are you going to monetize it? What are you going to go do next? Um, Those are all conversations that I think trusted advisors have with their accountant professional mm-hmm. okay all right so oh, clearly we'll, we'll want to unpick what those other seven yeah, yeah, me- sure. metrics are but be- be- before we do that john how have you reached the the, the insight that there's these eight metrics you know what, what what's where's your learning come from to then signpost that actually this is and i love your reference by the way the language of uh an accountant advisor talking to their business owner client is get fluent in the language of ownership, not just managing the business. I think that's mm-hmm. stunning in itself. That's worth the podcast alone, in my view. Owner versus manager well, metrics. Yeah, 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 yeah. Stunning. The how how have you? What's your journey in a little bit of detail, or maybe one or two key stories that point to the fact that ah, I've worked it out. I've worked. Mm. I've, I've to use your word. I've sort of codified or. or unlocked the formula for assessing or determining the value of a business. Yeah, I'll I'll tell you a personal story, which is very qualitative in nature, and that'll give you some quantitative data, objective data. 
qualitatively, I 20 years ago used to run a, a market research firm. And we did market research from some of the largest companies. World British Telecom was a client. We, Telstra was a client. Bank of America. All these big, you know, giant corporations. And we had this good housekeeping seal. This very, you know, brand name clients. We had profitability. We were 25, 30% profit margins each month, each year. We, we had a very profitable, successful business. We had about $5 million in revenue. And I went, decided that I wanted to sell it. And I didn't really know a ton about what drives value. But I thought I was sitting on a gold mine. Right, because we've got this this beautiful you know household name client list and all this profit, and I went to see a, a, an advisor, a guy named Perry, and I you know I said, what do you think it's worth? And I was rubbing my hands together, waiting for his response. And he said, okay, well, before I answer that, let me ask you a couple questions. I was like, shoot, and he's like, okay, well, you do research. Who does the research? And I was like, well, you know, it's these giant corporations. That, you know, I'm, I've got to be involved in you know certainly in designing the research. And he said, okay, sure. Well, who does the selling? And and he said, well. It's these giant corporations. It's British Telecom. Of course, I've got to go, you know, to the meetings. And, and he says, <laughs> "All right, uh, listen, John, I, I, I can't sell your company. There's nothing to sell. It's worthless." And you know, as the entrepreneur hearing that, it mm. was like you know, the baby in, in the maternity ward is the ugliest of all the bunch. It was horrible to hear, and felt like I'd you know just been punched in the nose, but. Uh, what he was pointing out was that I had a company that, while profitable and on the outside looked very successful, actually was not valuable because it was too dependent on me. And I worked with Perry for years after that, really transforming the business. We we put in a subscription model. Uh, we hired salespeople, got me out of doing the research. I mean, all the kind of things you would do. Ultimately, it was acquired by a publicly traded company. You would know them as Gartner Group, big New York Stock Exchange. Yeah, I know company. Gartner. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. You know, so the transition worked for me. And so, I, I, you know, I've lived this, you know, firsthand. Since then, uh, we built Value Builder. And at Value Builder, we've had 70,000 SME owners, 70,000 business owners go through and complete the Value Builder questionnaire. We asked them a whole series of questions about how they run their company. And we then asked them, what multiple of your pre-tax profit have you received in the way of an offer? And we can then clearly see the drivers, met, you know, objectively of company value by looking at that benchmarking data. Again, 70,000 businesses, so we can cut it by industry, we can cut it by geography, we'll look at the UK and how it compares to the United States as an example. Brilliant. Um, we've got lots of different sort of ways to cut the data, but we know sort of what drives value beyond just EBITDA and revenue, which, which are the classic things that you know, people think about. Mm. Fab. So you've got lots of, and, and again, another reason for wanting you on the podcast, you've got the, the depth of data as well as the qualitative and very personal experience of um, building and selling a business. So the seven metrics then, or the eight metrics, if the output metric is the value of the business, the seven input metrics is how I would potentially look at it, although I don't, you know, I'll let you run us through your views on that. Um, how do the other seven uh, show up, John? Yeah, I mean, I'll give you uh, I'll give you an example. One is called monopoly control, and monopoly control is how distinguished or different your company is from its competitors. To, to what degree you have a differentiating point of difference, something that is that is defendable. And yeah. Again, this is important to acquirers because, and we've all lived this in our own lives. If you think about 
you know, the old way we used to buy television, right? You, you know, you buy the, the Sky cable package, you watch maybe football and nothing else, yet you have these 300 channels you have to pay for, right? But you mm-hmm. only use one or two of them and it's frustrating. Yeah. The same, you know, you kind of look at the bill and you're like, why am I, you know, paying this? And then all of a sudden Netflix comes along and you're like, well, actually, I don't actually need all these hundreds of, I'll just buy the one that I care about. What's interesting is if we look at what we were paying for on a per channel basis, if just to use a round number, let's say you had a a hundred channels for a hundred pounds, you were paying one pound per channel per month on Mm -hmm. on a television package. If you buy Netflix, it might, I don't know what it costs in the UK, but maybe six or seven pounds a month. Yeah. 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 So if you think about it, you're buying one channel and you're paying seven times as much Mm. per channel but it's mm. only what you want. Mm. And acquirers are the same way. They will pay a huge premium to buy a business that does one thing better than anybody else, mm. but they will deeply discount all of your ancillary, your me too, your undifferentiated revenue. The yeah. revenue you get from products that they could simply replicate quite easily by lowering their price. I'll give you an example of this. So Stephanie Breedlove is a woman I interviewed on Built to Sell Radio years ago, and she built a wonderful little business based in Austin, Texas, called Breedlove and Associates. She was a mom. She had kids. She wanted to pay them, uh, pay a nanny, uh, an au pair, legitimately. And so she went to go to one of the payroll providers, and they wouldn't take her business. They transferred her call five different ways. And she said, well, there's an opportunity here. There's all these parents who have au pairs that need to pay them, why don't I set up a payroll company just to pay the au pairs? And she did that, and she built it up. She got to three or $400,000 in revenue, call a couple, couple hundred thousand pounds in turnover. One employee, when she reached a fork in the road where she couldn't continue to grow the business using her friends and family, so her like immediate you know, circle of influence, she, she kind of sold to all of them. And so she figured, had to figure out how to grow the business. And she had a few dozen clients at the time. And she looked at, you know, she read every book on the market. She looked at every, you know, lots of conferences and speakers sure. and everybody was saying, well, you've got to cross sell your existing customers, new products and services. Cause it's eight times cheaper, easier. You know, you've heard all sure. the shit. Sure. And, and so one route she, one road she considered was well, like what I could cross sell these parents who have nannies, something else. So like, what else do they need? They, well, they need lawn care and they need gardening and they need uh, meal delivery services and like, all this stuff that busy yeah. two income parents need, all of which was undifferentiating, none of which she had any business offering. Or she could do what was much more difficult, which was to go find more parents who had an au pair to pay. She chose the much more difficult road. As a result, she grew her business much slowly, much more slowly. So she grew it over 25 years, Paul. So like, this is not Google. This is not Tesla. This is a relatively moderate growth company. 25 years, she grew it to $9 million in turnover. Mm. When she looked around and said, I want to sell it. Who did she sell it to? She she found care.com. And care.com is um, a provider or a connector of people who need care, care, au pairs, nannies for their kids. And so you plug in your postal code and it says, okay, you're in Barmouth, whatever, here, you know, here's, you know, nannies in your local market. Well, care.com had 7 million subscribers at the time, 7 million care providers who needed payroll, 7 million. Stephanie had 10,000 customers. Yeah. So she went to them and said, look, buy my business. And if 1% of your 7 million 
customers buy my payroll service, that's a business with 70,000 customers. By the way, that's seven times my size today. Mm -hmm. Anyways, long story short, she sold her little $9 million turnover business for $54 million. Mm -hmm. Paul, that would never have happened had she focused on what everybody told her to do, mm. which is grow your revenue, grow your EBITDA by cross-selling your existing customers new and easy services. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And that's the difference between a manager metric like EBITDA. Oh, well, Stephanie, you've got, you, know, you can grow your revenue by you know, cross-selling mm -hmm. and thinking strategically about the company. And so that's what I'm talking about where, and you, you referenced this earlier, sometimes manager metrics actually compete with owner metrics. They're actually different. They're, you would pursue very different strategies if you were trying to optimize manager metrics than you would if you were trying to optimize owner metrics. And again, that's, that's where knowing the owner metrics and really talking to clients about them can be just hugely game-changing for accountants. Mm. It's. I knew this problem would come up for me on this call because there's there's almost two two pathways I'm wanting to go down. John, one is the insights you've got actually applied to the accounting firms themselves, mm. and then there's the other route, which is actually applying this to conversations with the clients of the accounting firm. There's, there's actually almost two connected but separate separate conversations and it seems that if you look at most accountancy firms the service lines are the same customers look similar and there's that is it a defendable position well almost more challenging than that is the owners partners directors of accounting firms are managing a portfolio as well as actually building the business so they're doing the doing mm. using a gerberism um more than they are you know working on leading as an owner of the business, um, it's a tough one, isn't it? It's just a tough one. Yeah. There, do you know Darren Root? Uh, I do. Yes, I've met Darren. Yes. Yeah. Darren provides an interesting case study because he's made some of the changes that that, that I talk about and built to sell. He, he ran in Bloomington, Indiana, a little accounting firm, uh, like had a lot of the challenges that you're describing, right? He was doing yeah. some of the doing, so he had a book of clients that, that trusted him and expected him to work. He did, you know, uh, he did audits, he did some technology consulting, obviously they did all the bookkeeping and the you know, bank reconciliation, and he did a little corporate fine. I mean, he did everything, right? It was the classic accountancy firm, lots of service lines. And he wanted to make a change. He, he didn't want to be doing the doing anymore. And he wanted to build a valuable, transferable company. And as a result, he made what we call a TBR change, Teachable, Valuable, Repeatable. He identified which services in his firm he could teach junior accountants to do that would still be viewed as valuable to his customers and would be repeatable, meaning have a tail to them, not be one-off services. And what he discovered was that by hook or by crook or by accident, he was doing business with a lot of medical professionals, dental practices, chiropractic clinics, et cetera. Yeah, 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 yeah. And as he interviewed them, they all had a very similar challenge. Their front office was where they, you know, create, you know, um, greeted clients, but their back office was really not that valuable. And there was just a lot of work that had to be done, billing, reconciliation, bank statements, credit cards, you know, all that stuff. Mm. None of them liked doing it. And, and oftentimes they had like a back office person they were hiring and had a FTE headcount, you know, $50,000, $60,000 a year, wow. but they were really underemployed. Yeah. They weren't a full-time person. And yeah. so he went to them and said, look, 
why don't we design a service where all we do is your back office? So we'll do the bookkeeping, we'll do the bank recs, and we'll do the credit card statements. And he branded it as boss for back office support system. And now when he presents to clients, it's not hire Darren Root because I'm really smart and can help you with your business. It's hire the boss system because it will help you alleviate this pain point. He's branded it independent of Darren Root. So, so many accounting firms, of course, have their, you know, their name, their surname in the firm. And that's a recipe for making it about you. Well, Darren tried to brand his Root works and Root, uh, you know, um, is the boss system yeah. in order to differentiate it. So that's, yeah, a, yeah. that's an example of someone in the accounting space that's sort of differentiated that way. And, and therefore defendable as a consequence, to use your very, very powerful word. Very defendable, yeah, yeah, yeah like yeah, Stephanie yeah. Brudelow. Yeah. yeah, yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Okay, so uh, monopoly control, uh, defendable, not reliant on you as a personality, putting your fingers in all the pies. Excuse my Burnley colloquialism. Um, so there, there's one. Uh, is that an input measure? It's 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 actually quite strategic that piece, isn't it, John? It's um, very much you've got to look at this as a business owner and make decisions strategically, big picture, uh, vision focus, uh, not the day to day business work. So there's a that's a slightly different mindset, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's, it's probably one of the most challenging things to do because, again, every part of your body, especially as an accounting firm, but also as an owner of an SME, is to generate revenue, yeah. generate cash, generate profit. And again, in many cases, that those come at the expense of differentiation. And, and those two yeah. things are very, very difficult. Yeah. Another That's one an we haven't talked about. Isn't it? Go on. Yeah. Go another, on. another attribute we haven't talked about, but I think bears a lot of relevance for both accounting firms and their clients is what we refer to as hub and spoke. And it's the management style that a lot of business owners use, which is that they are the hub inside of a wheel and all of their employees, customers, and suppliers are like spokes. And so when a employee needs, you know, wants a raise, they come into the hub and ask for a raise. When a customer wants a discount, they come to the hub and ask for this. When a supplier wants to sell you something new, they come to the owner. And it is incredible as anybody, you know, who's flown through Heathrow on a beautiful sunny day in May, it's a very efficient system right up until it's not right. So when Heathrow (laughs) goes down in November with like a rain or fog or whatever, like the entire world travel system falls apart because no, you know, in connecting flights can get in and out of London. That same thing happens to many SME owners when they get sick or they go on vacation or whatever, the entire business collapses and therefore it's not really worth anything to anybody unless the, you know, you know, the owner is willing to stay on. Yeah. I, I, I remember I, I did an interview on Built This Radio with a, a woman named Jody Cook and Jody is, um, I think she's based in Birmingham or just outside Birmingham, UK based. She does yeah. uh, social media. Wonderful lady. And in the beginning, she started a company called JC Media. So her names, her initials, Jody Cook Media. And they helped mm-hmm. brands you know, develop Instagram campaigns and Facebook campaigns and stuff. And as you might imagine, it was very, very dependent on Jody. But Jody is a very independent woman and says, you know, she wanted to build a business that wasn't dependent on her. And so she decided she wanted to create this company that could thrive without her. What she did is she got a blank piece of paper 
And anytime an employee came to her and asked her a question, she wrote it down. And then she set out to develop standard operating procedures or SOPs, in other words, instructions her employees could follow for every single one of the things they came to her for. And so over, uh, you know, uh, months, she built out this entire kind of, uh, operations manual of, for her business. And mm-hmm. when she went to sell it, uh, and remember this is a marketing services business. This marketing services business is usually trade at relatively low multiples and the owner needs to stay on for usually three, perhaps even five years to, yeah, yeah, yeah. to, to get an earnout. She sold it for a healthy, uh, multiple w- without an earnout. No mm-hmm. worn out. She left two weeks after handing over the keys. Yeah, yeah. That is virtually unheard of in yeah. marketing services. Yeah, yeah. And yet she did it because she stopped being a hub and spoke manager. Brilliant. And she really focused on getting the business to kind of thrive without her through these processes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or processes, uh, I should say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> processes, processes, you know, tomatoes and tomatoes. 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 Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the 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 other numbers that um, drive the output ultimate output number uh, of company value, John. So we've got that monopoly control, defendable, not dependent so much on you. If that's separate, um, the others. Yeah, I mean, we next? can talk about Switzerland structure as well. So. Uh, you know, the country of Switzerland's got a funny history. Uh, you'd be a student of history being in the UK. You know that Switzerland never joined the world wars, right? They kind of yep. tried to remain independent. They, they sort of sat in the middle. Uh, you know, they didn't join the United Nations before they had a countrywide vote. They don't use the euro or the pound for that matter. I mean, they are yep. like obsessed with independence, right? Yeah. Yep. And, uh, and so we gave the name the Switzerland structure to this attribute of a business not being dependent on any one thing. And the three dependencies companies usually get stuck on is a employee, a supplier, or a customer. And so you wanna make sure that when it comes to customers, you don't have any one customer generating more than sort of 10 or 15% of your revenue, or responsible for more than 10 or 15% of your revenue. Um, Employees, you wanna make sure you don't have like one great salesperson that's hard to kind of replicate or, uh, you know, one great, you know, accountant who is hard to sort of do without. Yeah. And then from a supplier perspective, this is one that's often, um, you know, often misunderstood. I'll give an example. I just did a, an interview with a guy who had an online business. They did training and they processed all of their payments through credit cards. And they, the processor they used was Stripe. And I was interviewing him and, uh, you know, about his, his, uh, his business and, and he reached a point where uh, they clipped past the 1% dispute rate. The dispute rate is when a customer disputes you charging their credit card. Right. And Stripe has a hard line in the sand saying that if you pat, clip past 1%, you're out. Oh, wow. And they blackballed him. He had eighty or ninety thousand dollars a month in expenses, employees, and rent, and so forth. And he went from having a hundred to one hundred fifty thousand dollars a month in revenue to zero. Mm-hmm. He could not process a credit card, and all of his customers paid through credit card. Mm. And he had to scramble and and move to ACH. Ultimately, he had to sell the business at a deep discount because he had this 
platform risk, which is a supplier risk effectively. Yeah. And so that can be a big hidden risk a lot of uh, you know firms have. When, when you get to accounting firms, they usually do quite well on Switzerland structure. They've usually got a diverse group of customers. They've got you yeah. know, no employee or too important. And, and obviously suppliers generally can sure. be switched out. Yeah. But their clients, the, the people they serve, hmm. often do very poorly on Switzerland structure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is, you know, I've, it's one of the numbers I go hunting for when going into an accounting firm is, you know, what what what's total fees or what's total fees of your top 10 clients? And usually it's like, oh, right. Um, why are we dealing with all these others? It could be one question. The other is actually from a cap value perspective, it's um, it, it potentially depresses, if not absolutely does depress the cap value of your business because it's high risk associated with those top 10 that are worth, yeah. you know, 60, 70 percent of your turnover. Especially if the accounting professional, the partner, maintains the relationship with those 10 clients, Absolutely. which they yeah, often yeah, yeah, do yeah, for yeah. obvious reasons, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so. Yeah. So, so we've touched on um, systems using the, the you know, standard operating procedure piece, the you know, defendable position, the monopoly control piece, the uh, dependence uh, piece as well. What else are the... If, we, if we're not going to cover all eight, which would be a challenge on this podcast, but, you know, if, if you were to identify the one or two other absolute jugular pieces, John, as yeah. opposed to the would-like pieces, wh- wh- where would you signpost insight so that we, the accountants listening to this, can build that fluency in the language of ownership and value, which I think is yeah. absolutely uh, an amazing concept. Yeah. Another big one is recurring revenue. And here, here, accountants usually do quite well, at least on their tax and compliance work. It is, by its very nature, recurring. Mm. Remember, though, that there is a difference between recurring revenue and reoccurring revenue. While they sound the same in my funny Canadian accent, they actually are different. Recurring revenue is predictable. It's usually the exact same payment every month. And reoccurring revenue is sporadic. It's like a reoccurring rash. You get it from time to time, but you're never sure why. Whereas recurring not, revenue is... You might be struggling with that, John. I'm not struggling with that one. Yeah, just so yeah. That, you or know. back pain or you know, any sort of medical <laughs> sure, sure, thing sure. that you struggle with. You're, yeah. you're, it's probably reoccurring as opposed to recurring. And a lot of accountants think they have recurring revenue, but actually brilliant. it's reoccurring revenue. It's yeah, something brilliant. that they're, you know, that, that, that comes back. And, and the real panacea is recurring revenue. Which actually leads me to uh, you know another driver that's sort of connected, but I think you know very important for both accountants and their clients, which is something we call valuation seesaw. Valuation seesaw gets its name because, as you know, when a heavy kid gets on a seesaw, the light kid jumps up. The same thing happens with the value of your firm on cash flow. In other words, if your firm is a cash suck. Mm-hmm. It will be less valuable than if it's a cash spigot, meaning it's generating cash as you mm-hmm. grow. And I'm and mm-hmm. here I'm not referring to profitability because yeah. as an accounting firm and accountant, you know there's a difference between EBITDA or you know expressing profit on a profit and loss statement and cash in your bank account. And here with valuation seesaw, I'm really referring to cash in your bank account. And 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 the reason that is material to acquirers is because they actually have to write two checks when they buy your business. The first, of course, is to you as the owner, right? They buy, they write, hopefully, a big fat check to you. They also have to write a second check. 
And the second check is to fund your working capital. Yeah. The amount of cash you need in your bank account when you hand over the keys to your clients, excuse me, to your acquirer. And if your accounting firm or your business for that matter, or the, or the businesses you serve is, are a cash suck, meaning you, know, you do the work, you send the invoice and you get paid 90 days later, you are going to have to fund, the acquirer is going to have to fund that working capital. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you are a cash spigot, you have a recurring model where you bill your customers every single month the exact same amount in advance, you're a cash generating firm or a cash yeah, yeah. generator. And, and that is a very uh, advantageous position to be in because the acquirer doesn't have to fund your working capital. So for those of you who have moved to kind of managed services um, where you're, you know, you're paying uh, a predictable, you're charging a predictable rate every single month, uh, that's, that's going to be great on two fronts. One, you've got recurring revenue. Two, you've got a, a, you know, you've got a cash spigot engine as opposed to a, a, a cash suck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, there's, I had a couple of conversations in sessions with accounting firms this week where we've just been unpacking uh, the the value volume of client work that's on monthly direct debit payments. Um, yeah, direct, yeah, direct debit. So, so that 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 deals with the cash generation yep. part of it. If they can drive the percentage of client, number of clients and value of fees into monthly direct debit, but actually. <sighs> The service they're delivering is an annual account service that just happens to be paid for every month. It's not a genuine subscription piece. It's not um, actually ticking that box of the, you know, which is, I guess is a story that comes out of your book, The Automatic Customer. It's um, contrast that with, say, uh, payroll, where there's payroll services being delivered every month and it's been building the cash is being collected every month on multi-direct debit that's ticking both the boxes that you're talking about have, yeah. I, have I understood I, that right in terms yeah, of the difference I don't between want this... go on yes you are yeah you are I, again I don't want this to sound like a commercial but it, it's a pretty softball setup so let me let me take it okay. where right. it goes <laughs> that's that's what we do at value builder so as an accounting firm you can use the value builder system to help your clients every single month build the value of their company. Sure. And in part, that's exactly why we design it, so that you would have a monthly deliverable. You'd be working with them each month, adding value to their uh, firm, as opposed to taking your tax and compliance work at the end of the year and just divide it into 12 payments. Sure. So that's that's an essential kind of component of, of yeah, yeah, yeah. why accountants use Value Builder as, sure, a, sure. as a platform. Well, let, Commercial let me over. Okay, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> Let's turn that around. Are you familiar with any accountancy firms that you've come across anywhere in the in the world that, um, in your view, have cracked the recurring revenue, genuine value delivery every month approach? I mean, I hate to go back to it, but certainly RootWorks would be an example of that. Part of right. Being a subscriber to the boss system is those monthly, you know, cash uh, reconciliation, bank reconciliations, and so forth. So that would be an example. Yeah. Anything, any accounting firm that has gotten into um, kind of bookkeeping um, and anything that is recurring on a monthly basis. So if you're being the back end bookkeeper for your clients, effectively mm. that's an ongoing service, and so yeah, that yeah, would be yeah. an example. Again, yeah. the key though. 
and I'll go back to something I said earlier, which is TVR, teachable, valuable, repeatable. Bookkeeping scores high on teachable. You can hire yeah. a bookkeeper. You don't need a fancy you know, accounting partner to do bookkeeping. Yeah. It scores high on repeatable because people need it on a recurring basis. Yeah. It scores low, however, on value because it's a commodity. Any bookkeeper can offer bookkeeping mm. services. Mm. And so what you want to do is if you're, if you're trying to apply this TVR model yeah. is, and, and a lot of people, Paul, when they hear this, they say, oh, okay, what I need to do is find out what we're really good at, what we're really mm. different at, and yeah. make it teachable. Mm. And that's really hard. I've mm. never seen, I, I shouldn't say never, I, I, have, I, I think that is a much, much harder thing to do than to find out what is teachable and instead make it valuable. Mm. So again, the biggest mistake when people try to apply the TVR thing to their firm is they start with what's valuable in their eyes, what's differentiating, and they try mm. to teach other people to deliver it. Yeah. Well, as you know, being a strategic advisor, a trusted advisor to a business and accounting, I mean, that's stuff that takes years, the EQ, the emotional, like the, the strategic, I mean, you can't just take a junior three years out of university and try to mm. shove all that knowledge into their brain. It, it never works. Yeah. The opposite though, I think does work, which is when you find something in your firm, which is teachable yet is today a commodity and you turn that into something that's valuable. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's two ways to make it valuable. One is come up with a better mousetrap, some technology there, you know, mm actually create some differentiating technology mm. the other is marketing mm. right when you and i go buy a pair of nike running shoes or nike t-shirt um you know i think we both know that that nike t-shirt could be purchased without the logo for half as much right but there's something that we do which is to that we place value in 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 in, a, in brands and so the other way to differentiate a commodity service is through better branding and branding your offering in a much more distinct, unique way. Mm. Fascinating. The, um, the, what, what's your view, John, in terms of purpose, you know, leading with purpose, so that, which I, you've just triggered this conversation because you've brought up branding. So in my head, mm. branding or, you know, uh, get your brand story right, your brand promise, which is in my head all, almost always connected with a, you know, core purpose to the business. You know, you take someone like Patagonia might be, you know, how do we save our home planet would be their core purpose. Mm -hmm. um, there's clearly strategic planning and thinking behind that as well, which influences marketing as well as operations and so on. Um, what's, in your experience, what's the... Uh, um, value multiplier that's at, attached to a really clear, savvy, uh, strategic plan, as as well as the numbers, as in terms of what's going on in the business, or is that just you know consultancy mumbo jumbo? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, I think the core idea is is very uh, it, it is excellent, and you know Simon Sinek, of course, it, you know was the yep, grandfather. This movement start with why perhaps he you know he he was a descendant of Jim Collins who you wrote Built to Last and yep. 
and many others with this idea of coming up with the core purpose, codifying it, and galvanizing your employees. I, I think it has many benefits. Here's what I would say. A lot of entrepreneurs, in my experience, are motivated to prove someone wrong. Right. They had a boss that they didn't get along with. You know, the parents said you cannot, you know, you can never start a business, go be a lawyer, a doctor, whatever. They, um, you know, they're, they just, they had an investor who said, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. I would never invest in this stupid idea. And they, and they're personally motivated to prove someone wrong and it gives them incredible energy. Hmm. Yet, one of the things that, you need to do, I think, as an entrepreneur, is no business is created in a vacuum, is to galvanize a team around you, to have mm. the same degree of passion that you have. And that's where you have to translate your personal anger at the world <laughs> and create a villain all of your employees can hate. <laughs> Because what you need to do is create an enemy. Every, you know, if you look at the, you know, the hero's journey, if you yeah, look at yeah. any uh, kind of Hollywood story, you know, we started Star Wars, for that story to work, there needs to be a Darth Vader, right? There needs to be an enemy. And I think for entrepreneurs, we make this mistake of, of kind of getting really personally angry about something and start a business to right or wrong, as an example. Yet, we have to then find a way to make that villain meaningful to the employees that we want to come join our mission. Mm. And so what Patagonia has done quite well um, is galvanize the team. It's not just Yvonne Chouinard's you know, personal gripe against oil companies. That, that sure. may be where it was in the beginning, but yeah, he's yeah, gone yeah. well beyond that now where people join Patagonia because they want to solve this bigger challenge. Mm. And so again, I think as entrepreneurs, we need to create a villain our employees can get really excited about defeating. Mm -hmm. um, so Uber, you know, wanted to defeat the taxi industry and anybody yeah. who's ever, I mean, the black cab in London is a wonderful service, but in Toronto, I can assure you the taxi service before Uber was not a wonderful mm -hmm. experience. And mm -hmm. there are thousands of people that have had terrible experiences in taxis. And as mm -hmm. a result, Uber is something that people can get excited about to go work mm -hmm. for, yeah. um, you know, Airbnb, uh, you know, the industrialization of the hotel business, the Marriott, the plastic, everything yeah, yeah. for a lot of people is frustrating. And that's yeah, the villain yeah. that Airbnb is trying to overcome. So it's a long winded answer. I can't even remember your question, but I no, think no, it was no, related to purpose and, and yeah, coming no, up I think with that's stunning. Something. I, I'm reminded of, you know, Virgin Airways grew, grew into British Airways. because British Airways was Darth Vader, and, wasn't it? So. Right. Everybody sat there, you know, waiting because yet another British Airways flight is delayed yeah. or being, you know, felt like you're a second class citizen because Same you're sitting in the, the small nose. seats and you didn't yeah. pony up yeah. for business class. Yeah, you, yeah, they yeah, they yeah, treated yeah. people like horrible human beings. As a result, yeah, yeah, they yeah. opened up this giant uh, opportunity for yeah, Branson yeah. to come in and make versions. That's, that's a fabulous uh, twist on the, um, uh, yes, let's have a core purpose, but actually built into that somewhere, there's actually, who are we trying to villain. defeat? Who's the villain that's out of order here that yeah. we can anchor it to is um, 
profoundly powerful. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, that's done it for me, John. I'm like, right, right, right. Why have, I know this, but why have I missed this when in that conversation about, you know, look at who's the... Um, Who's the the personality? Whether it be HMRC, for example, it could mm. be you know the you know the UK the the, the tax uh, office. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll, that's I'll a bit tell simplistic. you a funny. I'll tell you a funny story, Paul. It's an embarrassing story, but, uh, but uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think it. When I was probably I don't know twenty five, twenty eight, something like that. I I I had a business and I pulled together a little advisory board. And truth be told, it was you know friends of of. Uh, of mine and or you know clients of the business so it was not a board of directors it was just sure. it was a friendly advisor and in all my stupid 25 year old bravado i used to have these meetings and i'd be like i wanted this business to be you know sell for this amount of money and uh, i was all you know all about the numbers and all about like making this business you know and I remember this guy, I won't share his name because he hasn't given me permission to, to do so, but, but I remember him kind of looking a bit disgusted in the meeting. And, and eventually I sort of called him and I said, like, what's on your mind? And he said, John, like, this is all about you. Like, this is just you talking. This is all about you. And you're at a point in your business now where you actually have to get people to care as much as you do. This is all just about you and you building wealth and for you. What you actually need to do is is find something that is exciting and galvanizing for your team because they won't stand to benefit in the same way you do. And, and I felt like, I mean, I felt like an inch tall having being dressed down by this guy, but he was right, you know, in retrospect, again, it goes back 25 years or so. Sure. But, um, but I think a lot of entrepreneurs, again, we, we sort of have this very myopic sense of the world and we're like, no, I want to prove this person wrong or these people mm -hmm. wrong or this customer wrong. And, and yet, what we need to do is 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 morph that negative energy into a villain that everybody can get excited about. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I love that, John. Thank you. Um, so I, I just want to step back into that uh, fluent in the language of of ownership, because as the as the profession, and I'm I'm hearing this from all corners of the globe, as uh, addressing the shift from compliance accountancy services to advisory services and i would argue it's shifting from compliance to advisory plus compliance i don't think it's necessarily going down yeah. um which is arguably a more defendable piece but less teachable to pick up on your point mm -hmm. from uh, earlier um there's a a shift therefore from just having a historical conversation about last year's tax bill accounts performance of the business to a future outcome and the ultimate future outcome is the value of the business uh, but there's there's also that present conversation into right what do we need to do now in order to build you your business towards the freedom you want to enjoy in the journey and the freedom of the out when it eventually comes what 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 are your thoughts thinking experiences of that conversation which is a blend and a balance of the past the present and the future as opposed to the profession you could argue historically has been more obsessed with historical data 
Yeah, the rearview mirror. Yeah. 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 First of all, I agree with everything you just said. I, I think tax and compliance work is the table stake that gets you in the door, the trusted relationship that allows you this beautiful platform to have the strategic conversation. We asked business owners in a survey, who would you trust for advice on building the value of your company? We gave them a whole list of professionals, your lawyer, uh, your banker, your exit planner, your financial advisor, your business broker, your business transfer agent, et cetera. And the number one profession business owners would turn to is their accountant. Mm -hmm. So I think accountants have this wonderful platform of trust in order to have this strategic conversation. Yet I think in so many cases, we're missing the boat. We're talking to owners about how they did last year, and we're talking about the rearview mirror. And I think you're, you're spot on. If you want to be considered a trusted advisor to business owners, you've got to have fluency in talking about their biggest asset which is not their home, it's unlikely to be their pension, it is likely to be their company. And so I think this is a wonderful platform of Greenfield, you know, you know, having a conversation. What we coach accountants to do is have three conversations and looking at the, the business through three unique lenses. We have a questionnaire called the Value Builder Questionnaire, which evaluates the business on these eight dimensions we've talked about today, recurring revenue, hub and spoke, et cetera, monopoly control. That allows the accountant to see the business through the lens of how an acquirer would look at the company, so the value of the company. The second questionnaire, benchmarking questionnaire, we encourage accountants to use is something called PreScore, and that is stands for Personal Readiness to Exit. And that is where an accountant will ask a business owner to complete this questionnaire, which evaluates them on their psychological readiness effectively. Like, are, is that SME owner ready to leave their business? Is their ego still tied to their ownership? Have they put their finances in place so that they can make that, that transition? And then the third lens that we look at is a questionnaire called the Freedom Calculator. And the freedom calculator is an evaluation of the owner's financial readiness to exit their company. So you have, you know, the, the operational readiness to exit, which is the valuable to questionnaire. You have the personal readiness, which is the pre-score and the, the ego piece. And then you had the freedom calculator, which generates a freedom score, which evaluates the owner's financial readiness to exit. And so mm. when you have all three of those lenses, you have the kind of stool and you mm. can see, have I got a business that they could, is this business sellable effectively? Yeah. Is the owner personally ready to leave it? And is he or she financially ready to leave it? Yeah. And so, when you have all three, you've got the sort of full 360 degree lens. So the operational lens, is, yeah. it, is it fit to be sold? Yeah. Psychologically, are you fit to sell it? Yeah, that's and correct. And then ultimately is the, um, the financial return, that, the, the number that you want to achieve? That's right, and, and yeah, when we it use sounds as though it's not right based on the way you wrote. <laughs> no, no, you had it, you had it bang on. You had it absolutely oh, right. right. The freedom calculator evaluates how close you are to financial freedom, where work becomes a choice, not an obligation. Right. And so we we say, you know, how much how much income do you need in retirement? Uh, how much investable assets have you created to date? Uh, how much do you need to sell your company for in order to generate the the you know the nest egg you need to create the, the wealth that you et cetera? Yeah, so yeah, that's yeah. the freedom calculator. Right. Okay. And 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 actually, the way you've just described it there, John, is that's 
it, it includes the business, but it isn't just the business. It's the other no, it's wealth not. assets and income generators that um, an individual actually has. So yeah, we, we scrape out their personal residence because because they obviously need still to live, live somewhere. somewhere. But yeah, yeah. But you know, if you've got a, a holiday property, if you've got commercial real estate, if you've got stocks or you know what sure. crypto, anything else that is a valuable asset, we would we use in that calculation. Yeah, yeah, brilliant, brilliant. And so so we've uh, we've we've moved this conversation from. Yes, the past. Yes, the present. Yes, the future. To, but also to one which is not just you as a business owner, you as a, you know, a, 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 a spoke. If I can use that reference, I'm wary now of using that reference. A, yeah. a spoke of all the assets that you're actually a party to. So have a conversation, past, present, future, about their personal wealth, not just the business, um, yeah. which also includes the psychology of it. But um, yeah. ultimately, their number one asset is likely to be their business. And therefore, is it operationally fit for purpose, which is then back to the eight numbers that we started the conversation with, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And one, one of the really wonderful places for accountants to start is with pre-score. Because believe it or not, I mean, if you've been doing business with a customer for years, they're, they're, they'd be happy to complete their valuable questionnaire because you already have trust with them. But if you're talking to a, a relatively new client or even a prospective client, they can be a little bit cagey on sharing the, the real financial details, Yeah, which is why a lot of our advisors start with this thing called pre-score because pre-score is qualitative. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't require them to reveal any financial information about their company. Mm-hmm. And it looks at, you know, all of the qualitative things that make up the for personal readiness. So, for example, we, we ask a question. We have, There's like 20 questions on the questionnaire. But we ask a question. If you were to have a wedding or some, some other celebration, um, who would you invite? Would it be nobody from work? Everybody from work or a combination of people from your you know, personal life and work. Mm. And the reason we ask that question is we know that for people who rely on their work for their social life, or at least in part, they're going to have a much tougher time leaving mm. their company. Mm. We also ask, you know, is your surname in the company name? Again, it's very hard to be like John, you know, Smith and Sons Movers and and see the John Smiths and Sons moving van drive by Main Street and not own John Smiths anymore. That's a sure. really hard thing for John Smith because his namesake is on the truck that he drives by every day on his way to the pub or whatever. It's yeah. a big deal. So there's all of these questions which are actually a lot easier to ask. Which are so you know that's why oftentimes you know we'll start asking some of these sort of easier softball questions, which, which warm the, the business owner up to asking some of the more difficult questions. Yeah, yeah. No, but I think um, w- what's really valuable about that, John, is the quality of the questions you ask your clients mm. in these three conversations, you know, the operational, the psychological, and the financial, for, for, for want of a summary. It's because... Um, I spent, in fact, I was on a, a, an accountability call yesterday with a, a group of managers around um, some of the, um, we've been working with them on how to craft great questions uh, and and put them into their meetings with their clients. And um, uh, I came off that call kicking myself going, what am I doing wrong here in order to help accountants actually habitualize mm. asking great 
questions. Um, but what you're saying is, we'll just have a set of well worked out questions in advance, which, by the way, is where I was trying to get. Uh, I'm trying to get them to. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Did you talk to them about the power of what questions? Oh yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes, you know what, what, and how. Ultimately, the two, you know, the 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 the, the two, you know, stalwarts of a really, really good, uh, a good conversation, yeah. and then it, linking past, present, and future, and lost lack. In uh, it, there's so many, you know, the spin model. I'm a big fan of in terms of actually creating meaningful conversations so that the depth of the insight uh, crops up. But it sounds as though you've crafted those into a set of questions across the three conversations, which is, I would have thought, yeah, probably I mean, worth the accountants uh, looking into. Yeah, no, it, it, I, I love the fact you're using what questions. When we we offer some training called Certified Value Builder, which, which we do with the accounting firms. And one of the things that we talk to them about is that most of their questions are usually why questions because they're used to looking in the rearview mirror. And mm. so they'll say things like, so, so why do you pay commissions on, yeah, on, yeah. on Fridays? Or, or why do you uh, charge this for this product? Or why do you sell this? Or why do you, and, and, and what questions that begin with why do to the human brain is they put us on the defensive, yeah, right? Because yeah. we are socialized to feel like we're being put on the spot. Right, like if you think about your your own mom, like you know, why did you leave the gate undone, or why did you spill your milk, or why did you go to bed so late, or why didn't you? That's we were being scrutinized, right? Yeah. And yeah, that yeah, yeah. question shuts our creative mind off, and it puts us into defense mode. Well, yeah. I didn't leave. I left the gate open because I wanted the dog. Whatever, <laughs> it yeah. puts and us you in start defense justifying mode. your existence. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so when an accountant starts questions that begin with the word "why," the business owner will close his or her arms and start. You know what they're saying in their mind, whether they articulate it or not? How dare you ask or second guess me mm. about my business? I've been running for 27 years. How dare you come to my place of business and question the way I do business? That's yeah. what they're saying. Yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden, you've lost the ability to create a trusted relationship because Agreed. you're you're in a war with them over how to run a business, right? Brilliant. And you're always going to lose that war because yeah. they probably well, you, know better than anybody on the yeah. outside how to run their business. Yeah. My, Whereas my, if we just change the questions to what questions we get, stuff. we stimulate creativity, et cetera. Yeah. With, without asking the, uh, what were your reasons behind doing that? Because that's just, in my view, a smart-ass way of asking why. smart-ass way of it. asking why. <laughs> <laughs> or how come yeah. is also a smart-ass way of asking why. I use, yeah. When, yeah. When, when working on exactly the same subject is, I used to think the emotional reaction of the, uh, the person in front of you when you ask a why question is really high and really negative. Yes. And I, you know, I said, look, you know, I've been planning a big night out for my, uh, uh, for my, my wife and I uh, recently, and she came downstairs, and I just asked the simple question: "So, why are you wearing that dress?" And that was the end of the evening. You know, <laughs> oh, it's like, Paul, what are you doing, man? <laughs> and I know this now. It's, it's a story from a long time ago, but I learned my lesson, John. I learned my lesson. <laughs> Oh, brilliant. So, yeah, the, the quality, quality of questions key. Quality of the subject matter key, which is business owner business owner yeah. and business manager yes um but the psychology also of the business owner and what financial freedom actually uh and it's not just financial freedom is it that we're, we're, we're pursuing here no it's um, psychic freedom on yeah, yeah. Some level. yeah so i've got uh, if we can fit it in a couple of less a couple of more questions one is how do you know freedom is 
what it is business owners are seeking, John? Or is that just, I know, you know, Gerber said it as well. You know, I've shared a stage with Michael a few times and, you know, he's a passionate look. This is what business owners and at the time, I've, I was never brave enough to ask Michael that question, but I, I, I'm, I've just about managed it with you because we're not actually in the same room. But um, yeah. how do you know that freedom is the underlying foundation stone of, um, you know, what business owners are about? Yeah, yeah. In fact, you know, what I didn't share with you earlier about the, the qualitative research company that I went to advisor years ago about, we, we actually studied... SME owners. Uh, that's what we did. We provided right. those results back to British Telecom and Microsoft and all these customers. And for that business, we um, did a fairly significant quantitative research study and qualitative and identified that there are three psychographic profiles in the SME market. Broadly speaking, you can categorize SME owners into either mountain climbers, freedom fighters, or craftspeople. So mountain climbers are the people, you know, they show up on Dragon's Den. Their, their, their motivation is to grow the top line of their business. They're ambitious people. They're competitive. They want to create a, a significant business. They want to be the next Tesla, the next Amazon, et cetera. Freedom fighters, in contrast, by contrast, are motivated by independence, so they seek out independence. They don't want to create a massive company, but they do want to decide who to work with, how to work, when to work, et cetera. Jody Cook is a freedom fighter in my view. Uh, craftspeople are motivated by mastery, meaning they want to be known as the very best at what they do. And so the, the, you know, the, the massage therapist, the plumber, who is the, the absolute craftsman in what he or she does is is motivating that person and so three different very different psychological reasons that they are entrepreneurs if you will one of the things that you can see running through as a vein through all three of those types of people is freedom in the case of mountain climbers it's financial freedom it is if fu money, it's the ability to compare and contrast themselves with others. With freedom fighters, by the nature of their the name, they are motivated by independence, so they too seek out independence. And craftspeople are motivated to be free to exercise their craft, to master their craft, to not have to fill in a box or do it the same way every time. To be free to actually you know create in in the way they see fit. And so all three of them have that underlying vein of, of the desire for freedom. So that's, and you know, we validated a bunch of different quantitatively way, quantitative ways as well. But we also ask in a recent survey of, of value builder users, you know, what is, what is uh, financial freedom to you? What does financial freedom to you mean? And we gave them three potential answers. We said, is it someone with $10 million of investable assets or more? Is it someone who has enough money to fund their lifestyle expenses in perpetuity? Or is it someone who could do whatever they want whenever they want to? And 48%, the majority answered to do whatever they want whenever they want to. And the minority, just 15% said it was someone with $10 million. So it's not about um, money necessarily. Mm -hmm. It's what the money buys that yeah, yeah. is most important to yeah, entrepreneurs. Yeah. I, I did an exercise uh, recently with a, 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 a full team in a, in a firm, not just leaders and managers, but the full team, and unpicked what, what, what are the three things that really matter to business owners. And it, it took us three 
three passes to you know get to the bottom of it but ultimately they all said it was freedom so i i you know i, 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 I was i just you've got much more profound I've got anecdotal data you've got much more profound data around that um, yeah, yeah. that's brilliant well, i think your intuition is bang on um thank you uh, so of everything we've covered, John, in this um, fairly wide ranging uh, conversation, and albeit we haven't necessarily unpacked the detail behind all of the eight numbers, but people can just get mm. you built to sell book, which I think is one of the most profound reads for every accounting firm. And it's one I recommend regularly, um, if not <laughs> every firm we've ever worked with. Um, oh, I think, you know, the Michael Goes Emith revisited your book, uh, I think are just brilliant partners in terms of getting what it takes to build a conversation with business owners about how they actually improve what they're doing. Um, of all the things that we've covered off on this call, um, if there was one you'd want to pick on which you think's of most value to accountants in the conversation they're having with the clients, which what, what would you pick on? Yeah, I, I think I'd go back to the beginning of our conversation around the difference between manager metrics and owner metrics. Brilliant. And I think the tax and compliance accounting firm uh, can talk all day long about manager metrics and you can build, you know, you're all doing all the reporting. But I think if your aspiration is to get into advisory services, is to be viewed by your clients as a trusted advisor, we need to change the language. We need mm -hmm. to go from manager metrics to owner metrics. And the ultimate owner metric is the value of their most important asset. Mm. And, and I think that's the transition that an accountant needs to make if the aspiration is to get into advisory services, so to speak. Yeah, and you know, in terms of building cap value and creating a more defendable position, that's not a bad direction to go in is it and i'd just pick up and run with the last part of our conversation and around that is well-crafted questions are what create good conversations so well-crafted questions the fluency about ownership your point which i think is a piece of genius um is yeah. key to that they've already got that and, in and, terms of manager ownership lesson yes yes and and looking at the business through the three lens we lenses we talked about the owner the, the business's transferability the owner's readiness to transfer as well as their financial readiness yeah. to leave yeah. and through all lenses is going to be important. stunning stunning john I, I hope this gets the widest of audiences because i think what you shared is profoundly valuable to every, certainly every accounting firm i've ever been in i think can pick up and run with the insights that you shared today i really appreciate you taking your time your effort and applying your energy to this discussion thank you oh, very, my, very my much. pleasure it's it's great to it's been great to chat thank you You'll find more valuable discussions with the leaders of ambitious accounting firms at humanisethenumbers.online. You can also sign up to be notified each time a new podcast is made available. This podcast series, Humanise the Numbers, has been made possible thanks to the support of our sponsors, My Work Papers, Advanced Track, Citago and VFD Pro. Visit humanisethenumbers.online Click the logo of each sponsor and you'll hear what our podcast interviewees have to say about the sponsor's services. You're about to hear a short excerpt with Head of Marketing Zoe Paradine from the national firm UHY. If you like what you hear from Zoe, 
please go to humanisethenumbers.online or your favourite podcast platform, including Apple and Spotify. You know, you get a cold lead through the door, picking up the phone straight away and, and starting that conversation, starting to forge the relationship rather than just using the information that's been given to you and submitting a document. Let's take this further, you know, let's start a relationship, let's understand more um, than has been given to us because there are a lot of firms that won't do that. They'll just submit a document based on the, the RFP that's come through the door rather than trying to sort of extend the relationship and, and glean more information. Um, and yeah, the, the, whole, the whole process for us in, around pitching has massively changed over time. You know, partners are picking up the phone within 24 hours. I mean, email sometimes, but we know the preferences for a phone call and we will always try and get that phone call or a meeting where possible. Um, and it's had, it's had significant impact, you know, for prospective clients will say, oh, you, you're the only firm that bothered to speak to me. Um, you know, so already you're one step ahead of everybody else by doing those things. Mm -hmm.